Hello and welcome to Flaptrin. This is Lane. This is Meg. And today we're discussing The Secrets of Sir Richard Kenworthy by Julia Quinn. This was published in 2015 and is the fourth and final book in the Smythe Smith Quartet. So we're finishing this obviously right before Bridgerton comes out. We'll be releasing it right after. Mm-hmm. So I think the romance world at this moment is kind of having a Julia Quinn moment. Yeah, I think so. I It's been really interesting to read all of the Bridgertons and then go basically straight into the Smite Smith as well. Because I I like the Bridgertons. I think it's a very pitchy series to use a an American Idol term, right? <laughs> like there are some really good books. And there are some really bad ones, so books that I just can't stand. I feel like this series is much more solid. I do think it's more even. Yeah. Um, thematically and in terms of quality. That said, for all that, I will totally admit to feeling some Julia Quinn fatigue at the moment. I am glad we read them this close together because yeah. the fact that they happen concurrently time-wise, I don't think I would have caught as many of the little references as I yeah. did uh-huh. if I waited my usual amount of time between reading series. Yes. Yes. I agree. I agree. And I, so there's that. And then I think too, I think she really wanted to explore some new territory with these books. So Yes, return sort of to the Bridgerton universe, but also with something a little new. So I say new. Yes, this is a family. Yes, this is in the Bridgerton universe. Yes, it's in the the town. We, we don't have anyone who's like a poor servant or something like that. Yes, there is a Sir Richard. Uh, yeah. Yes, there's a Sir Richard. So yeah, there's like a lot. The secrets of Sir Richard. Yeah. I don't know, but I feel like. She had two other series in between this one and the Bridgertons. And I feel like this was a return to form, but in a new way, which I really like a lot. I will say the one way that these books are not super consistent is in terms of the level of sexiness, just Mm -hmm. foreshadowing a little. Like the first one was so chaste. So chaste. Second one was also pretty chaste. This one at least outdoes its brethren in that <laughs> predecessors, <regard>. yes, indeed. <laughs> well, what is this book about, Lane? Let's read All the right. jacket. So the jacket. Sir Richard Kenworthy has less than a month to find a bride. He knows he can't be too picky, but when he sees Iris Smythe-Smith hiding behind her cello at her family's infamous musicale, he thinks he might have struck gold. She's the type of girl you don't notice until the second or third look, but there's something about her, something simmering under the surface, and he knows she's the one. Iris Smythe-Smith is used to being underestimated. With her pale hair and quiet, sly wit, she tends to blend into the background, and she likes it that way. So when Richard Kenworthy demands an introduction, she is suspicious. He flirts, he charms, he gives every impression of a man falling in love, but she can't quite believe it's all true. When his proposal of marriage turns into a compromising position that forces the issue, she can't help thinking that he's hiding something, even as her heart tells her to say yes. 
This is one of her better jackets. I agree. I think it's a great jacket, actually. It sums up the plot with the beginning of the plot. It has the whole setup. It really gives you a sense of both characters and the conflict. And I do think the way it it's worded gets at the vibe of the book. Definitely. I, I, I think this jacket is, is very good. I don't think you would be disappointed if you read the jacket and then you read the book. You're not going to be like, wait, what? You know, this is, this, there's a mismatch here. No. If this sounds like it would be interesting to you, then I think the book would be interesting to you. Definitely. Uh, so as usual, we generated a random number between 1 and 50. This week, that random number was 4. So we both wrote some different summaries. I decided to do not a summary, but a newspaper headline yes so this is mine secret family drama exposed yes exposed internally it takes a while but it gets exposed but i just don't want to it's not like exposed in the press no no this is a this is an internal family press (laughs) right family press it's like the the family Christmas newsletter. The family that only Christmas goes to each other. That's exactly what it is. <laughs> so my forward summary: whirlwind courtship and celibacy. Oh, doesn't that just sound so attractive <laughs> and surprising? Yeah, I think that was an interesting hook, even though you knew. We'll get into it. Okay. So uh, what tropes were in this book, Meg? This is, it's a really good question. At first I said, okay, this is marriage of convenience. Richard needs to find a bride. So he finds a convenient one. Right. That said, she's not aware it's a marriage of convenience. It's not like they've come to any sort of agreement. No, she's started falling for him. She knows it's quick, but as far as she's aware, it's a match. Maybe not a love match, maybe not yet, but it's a match. Well, and then I thought about it more, and I actually think that what this trope is, is the fortune hunter trope. I think you're right. Now, there is an element of ruined and forced to marry. Yes. In the sense that, like, that does literally happen. But he already proposed when the ruination happens, so... I, I do think you're right that rather than him seeking money, he's seeking a woman of certain qualities to solve a different issue than a dilapidated house. Yes. But yeah, you're totally right. This is a modification of the fortune hunter trope, which you usually hate. That's the thing. I was really, I've really been struggling to put into words why I like this book so much mm-hmm. because I think if someone said, yeah, it's fortune hunter, but he's not, he's not hunting a fortune. I still would not be into it. And yet, I don't know. Uh, She does a really, in my opinion, she does a really good job with the characters, which is why I think I like this book so much. I am a sucker for good characterization. And if you give me believable characters who they can do the stupidest things they can make the stupidest choices but if it is in character and I believe it I am there for them and Iris has been really well established through the first three books in this series so you also have the benefit of really having a sense of who she is if you've read the series in order 
without this book having to do a lot of that legwork. Yes. So Iris is the deadpan snarker mm-hmm. of the family. She's definitely, and, and oddly, she's like the one Smythe Smith with musical talent. Yeah. But that somehow makes the indignity of having to play worse. But unlike some of her other relatives, she's never called out. She's never bailed. She's sort of, nothing about her is big. She doesn't have a big personality. She doesn't have that big dramatic fight moment. She doesn't have Sarah's hyperbole or, oh, the first one's like, good spirits when it comes to the family drama. She's actually not into it. She's one of the ones named after a flower. And what's interesting is Richard does pop up out of the blue. Yeah. Yeah. Richard has not, he's, it, this is not a, uh, a Hugh who we've heard about. It's not Daniel who we heard about. So we heard about both Hugh and Daniel before their books. Yes. And the same with Sarah and Iris. We knew all about them um, before their books. But Richard, Richard appears out of nowhere. No one really knows anything about him. And so his yeah, deal is he hasn't been in society for years. Right. Even though he's young and a sir. Mm-hmm. A baronet. <laughs> Whatever. Um, <laughs> because he's a sad, tragic orphan. Mm-hmm. His parents died unexpectedly when he was off at school. Mm-hmm. So he's been the lord of the manor and the sole caretaker of his siblings since he was, like, 17. Something like that, yeah. And he's got, like, family who helped out, and the girls went and lived with an aunt for briefly. But what's driven him back to town, nobody knows. It's a secret, as you may have guessed, from the title title. of the book. (laughs) Look, this is, there's no false advertising here. Richard has got some secrets, and he keeps them a secret for most of the book. Even from the reader, except not really. Well... Yeah, if you are, if you know, uh, yeah, if you're not dumb, you figure, that's not true. It's not if you're not dumb. It's if you're paying attention to what you're reading and you care about his secret, then you probably figure it out. You figure it out if you've ever read a romance novel before. That also helps if you're an experienced romance reader. (laughs) (sighs) So... Obviously, given that this is a Julia Quinn book in the Bridgerton universe, family is everything. Family is everything. Extended, because he, as we mentioned, is a sad, tragic orphan, and the people he cares most about in the world are his sisters, and he would do anything for them. Mm -hmm. This is also a Julia Quinn, so you know that if there's any wedding night advice, it's going to be real bad. It was horrible. I feel like this was funny the first time in The Duke and I, and she needs to bury this now. Like, I don't need any more bad wedding advice. It was cute and funny once. The second time it was like, okay, which was in um, The Viking Who Loved Me. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it happened in some of the inter, the, the books in the inter, intervening years. So what's interesting, though, is Violet Bridgerton is bad at giving marital advice because she's embarrassed mm-hmm. iris's mother clearly doesn't love her father and clearly hasn't had any good loving sexual experiences herself 
So her advice is more bad from a place of ignorance, mm-hmm. which honestly just made it really depressing here. <laughs> yeah. More than funny. Yeah, it was funny, but depressing. I mean, she, I did like Sarah's advice. I really yes. quite enjoyed it a lot, actually. <laughs> and it it's just did such a good job of highlighting the difference between the cousins. Yes. It was great. If you're going to give me character building, bad wedding night advice, that's fine. Yeah, so I kind of wish the part with the mother had just been skipped. Me too. And it had just been Sarah and Iris. And I think then it would have been like, okay, fine, it's Julia Quinn, so there's a wedding night advice. But at least it was done differently and well. Mm -hmm. Uh, Anything for my sister? Another trope that appears in here. I think the central tenant of the central trope of this book to me is we can't have sex for reasons. Agreed. I agree with you. A lot of times when you see abstinence or forced abstinence, it's like a bet or an agreement or a deal that both parties are sort of into, or it's we are not married and I won't have penetrative sex with someone I am not married to. Mm -hmm. This is, I think, the first romance novel I've ever read where a married couple is not having sex because one person's decided not to. There are parallels of the Duke and I write with him not ejaculating in her versus not penetrating her. Yeah. But in this case, like he has decided they are not having sex for reasons and will not communicate that to her or tell her why. Yeah. When she figures I, it out. I feel like, I feel like, I have read one other one that mm-hmm. was similar. Okay. But it, but it's also different. Um, anyway, but yeah, it is, I don't think this is a very common trope. I mean, there is the, we can't have sex for reasons, but the specific reasons, it's the, the fact that one of the partners in the couple is not aware of what the reasons are. Yes. I think is what's different. And they're married. And they're married. I think there, I've read somewhere like only one per- partner knows why they're not having sex and we'll talk about it, but they're not actually married. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking specifically right now of um, Remembrance <laughs> when he won't have sex with her because he's made a deal with the evil mother, but they're not married. <laughs> they're not married. <laughs> oh gosh. Okay. I mean, I was thinking of the one we just read, the one that I really liked, uh, When a Rogue Meets His Match. But mm. they both know why right. they're not so, having sex. So. Right. But they are married. Right. I mean, most of the time they get married. If they're married and they're not having sex, someone, one of the partners, wants to uh, annul the marriage eventually. <laughs> like that's, that's the usual trope. Yes. And he does not want an annulment. That is not the reason why they're not having sex. Correct. Yep. So is this a trope, Lane, or is this just the resolution of the conflict, the importance of an outside perspective? I've seen this trope several times where, especially with these family-centric books, mm-hmm. like the main character has worked up a huge problem in their head, and then 
because the nature of the way this book is constructed means like the actual problem isn't revealed till the very end. It obviously has to get wrapped up very quickly. Mm -hmm. And the mechanism that the author uses to do that is basically by having the outside person who's come into the situation immediately know what the problem is and solve it. Yeah. But it's, I mean, this is also twilight, right? Yeah. In the second book, especially when, Jacob and Bella aren't talking to each other and then he's like I don't know what the vampire wants and she's like me she's literally trying to kill me yeah so I I definitely think this is a young adult romance trope in different ways sure I I'm you're right the resolution of the conflict here is very specific but I think the idea that a conflict is easily resolved when you finally talk to the other person Mm -hmm. is actually pretty pervasive yeah, maybe. I just also feel like it's, this is how a lot of conflict can be resolved in real life, too. So that's why I'm like, is this a trope or is this just real life? I don't know. I mean, that's a really fair point. But I think the problem for me is it's sort of, it's it's a quick deflating balloon of conflict resolution. Like, it it's disappointing pointing not in the sense of it being inauthentic but in the sense that like I just read 90 pages thinking that there was like a real problem to be solved and this was resolved in four pages why did I just put myself through that I I guess that we're I don't know again I perhaps because it is true to the character I was like yup give it to me and give me more of it I was so ready for it. <laughs> so as you probably gathered. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I was going to say, I also love how this is made. This is explicit in the text. He takes her home and he's like, let's look outside. He's like, I would love it. Please tell me what you see, because I would love to have an outsider's perspective on my estate. Tell mm-hmm. me what you see and what you do, you know, what you think about it. And mm-hmm. she does, but she's just very pragmatic. She's like, I see the beautiful estate looks nice. Mm-hmm. And he's like, well, that was kind of deflating. And she was like, what can I say? I'm not romantic. But then she, like, I don't know. I just love it because then the same thing happens with the conflict. And she's like, yeah. It's a really well-constructed narrative. Yes. That's what I, I don't know. Maybe that's why I love it too. Like the whole everything. Oh, I love this book. So as our listeners have realized, Meg really, really likes this book, and Lane is sort of mad on it. (laughs) All right. So I think we're done with tropes, right? Yeah. We're done with tropes. Um, So I guess the fact that it's well-constructed, the characters are well-developed, and it kept kept my attention the whole time, I like this book. I like it a lot. I think I'm one of the only people in the world to think this is a great book. So interestingly, Meg let me know when she was writing her notes that she read some reviews and people seem to hate Sir Richard for the choices he makes. I'm not in that camp. He's no Sebastian St. Vincent, whatever. He's no Benedict Bridgerton. No, he's he's fine. My problem with this book is, as alluded to by the title, he has a secret. You have that fun thing where you spend half the novel in his head and he's thinking around his secret to keep the reader in the dark. And then once the secret comes out, it results in the main characters not really talking or communicating through the whole, like, 50 to 80% of the book. And then 
it all sort of ends up being a nothing burger of a conflict. Other than the fact that he lied to her and kept the secret from her, mm-hmm. which she also pretty much immediately forgives when she realizes she's not going to have to suffer the consequences of that decision. Yes. I, I, again, I don't know. It's the, it's the way her character was developed and the way it was described. I really like, I really like Iris. I really like the way Quinn portrays Iris. Yes. My problem's not with Iris's character. I would have liked this book so much more. So much more. If Richard had just thought of what the secret was from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. I don't, I actually don't know what was added to the text by hiding it from the reader. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't disagree with you. I found well, it so I, I guess I the you because was so obvious. Yeah, I guess I disagree with you because I it didn't. I, I don't care, <laughs> so I can't say that the book would be improved. But I don't think the book would be worse if he thought about it. I was so frustrated. There were a couple of points where he literally spends paragraphs internally monologuing about thinking around the secret. Mm-hmm. And I was so over it. I was like, this is so obvious. This is so stupid. It adds nothing to the text to build up the suspense. If it had been an actual mystery, if it had resulted in an actual conflict, if I, even if I found it unbelievable that he wouldn't think of it, if I at least felt like it added to the narrative, mm-hmm. it adds nothing <laughs> to hide that one detail from the reader. Well, that's just like your opinion, Lane. <laughs> That this entire podcast is 50% my opinion. <laughs> what do you want me to do? I, I don't, and I don't think that other people would disagree with you. It's, in fairness, though, like I said, the people who think what Sir Richard did is completely unforgivable. Nah, I don't. Like, do I think he's a, do I think he's a monster? No. Do I think he made really stupid decisions? Yeah, I do. Do I think that those stupid decisions were in character? Also, yes. So that's why I'm like, yeah. This is a guy who feels really guilty for having, in his opinion, abandoned his sisters. Right? Right. And now he, what, his his driving force is to protect his sister. Which leads him into just really making some really stupid decisions like extremely stupid decisions right I find I think we're going to have to do a spoiler tag version at the end because I do want to talk about this more explicitly but I don't want to ruin the twist for people who care and don't read a billion romance novels and don't pick up on it and like page 10 (laughs) okay let's we'll talk about him later let's talk about the whole thing later Let's see if there's other stuff that we do want to talk about. I guess, I guess for me, let's talk about the fortune hunter trope okay. that is twisted. So the twist on the fortune hunter trope is he needs to get married. He needs a bride with certain qualities. So in the fortune hunter trope, he needs a, a an heiress. Right. But here he needs, basically, he needs someone for whom family is all important and who is very loyal. And who is intelligent, basically. Those are the three qualities that he's looking for. Which I do like in this variation on the fortune hunter trope. 
so often, or not even just the fortune hunter trope, so often grooms who are marrying out of a sense of obligation, whether it's to get money or whether it's because they're a title holder and they know they need an heir, they literally think, I want a dumb woman. I want a woman I have nothing in common with. I want someone it's easy to leave behind or like yeah. I have no, I don't care about who the person is at all. Even at his most desperate, he's still thinking at the very least, I will be spending time with this person for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. Like he's not convinced it has to be a love match. This is not romantic at all, but at least he's like, I want someone I like spending time with and who is smart and can carry a conversation. And I, I liked that even at his most desperate, that was a priority for him because mm. he was recognizing that the alternative would be miserable. Yeah. Um, so that that's what he's looking for. And I think that's, so, so he's looking for this person with these qualities. Um, so yes, the fortune hunter trope, there is some, this person that you're supposed to be rooting for is doing something that's pretty shady and underhanded. And I think Sometimes. I mean, we've definitely read Fortune Hunter trope where everyone knows he's a fortune hunter and the woman knows when she signs up for it. Right, but then that's not a fortune hunter. Then it's a different trope. Okay. <laughs> but, but it's true. Like, I think we even talked about it. We There was some book we read where yeah, they were that's like, true. okay, it was Marriage of Convenience at that point. Yes, you're right. Yeah. You're, you're entirely right. Okay. Thank, thank you, Lane. <laughs> I appreciate it. <laughs> fortune Hunter isn't about money. It's about the deception. You are totally right. Yeah. And so that's, that, that's what was interesting to me. So, and I think that's why I don't like fortune hunter trumps is that the guy, he's doing something shady and the author has got to convince you that, yeah, he did this shady thing, but it's for a good reason. So they have to say the ends justify the means. Right. Right. And I'm not, I'm actually kind of don't believe that. I'm, I'm not an ends justify the means kind of person. I think the means are very important. You have to mm-hmm. act ethically and blah, blah, blah. But anyway, that's my own philosophy. Well, and I do think if you can forgive someone for tricking a woman into marriage to save an estate, I would argue his motivation is at least more noble. Than Richard's? No, no, no. Than a traditional fortune hunter. Yeah. Sorry, sorry. Yes. That, like Richard's motivation here in protecting his family is more understandable to me than just I want your money and think of you as secondary exactly and I mean he does think of her as secondary and he explicitly thinks I need to find someone who doesn't have much much other choice yes that like won't be disappointed right like isn't giving up a better option someone who he literally thinks someone who needs me more than I need her yeah or so she would think like socially well it's also interesting because how much of the last three books iris has spent basically being like i don't care who he is as long as i don't have to perform in this damn musical again Mm -hmm. (laughs) but when it comes down to it she does have slightly more scruples of course of course but i i don't know so i i after thinking about this for a long time, so after reading the reviews and after knowing that Lane had issues, some issues with the book, I really felt like, okay, I have to, I have to figure out why I like it. And so I think that I like this book because the characters are good, because it's well-constructed and well-written. 
And thirdly, because it takes a trope that I don't love and makes it something acceptable. <laughs> it's definitely an improvement on the fortune hunter trope for sure. Yeah. I mean, do I love it? No, but it was interesting to me. Yeah, I, I don't think you love the choices he made, but you understand that in the context of the book. Exactly, exactly. And they are over-the-top, ridiculous, stupid choices, yes. which I kind of love. Like, I love over-the-topness in a romance novel. I really wish I could read this book without the evasive thought process. Yeah. I really do wonder how much that would change it for me because I just felt so frustrated reading it. Yeah. And I wonder if that frustration had disappeared. Yeah. How I would have, like, if I'd be kind of viewing the thematic elements as in the same way you are. Yeah. Well, and I think this is something that we've, we've actually had disagreements, not disagreements, but differing, we have differing feelings on this issue and have from the very beginning from yeah. other books that we've read together. So I knew it would be an issue. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but. once again, I am predictable. So um, did anything about this book actually offend you or bother you? Like actually offend me or bother me? No. Are there things that should have a content warning? Probably, yes. Yeah. So there is an unwanted pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot, there's a discussion of a lot of classism. Yeah, and I actually think it's deeper than just the stuff that happens at the end. Mm -hmm. I mean, he talks about being a baronet and mm -hmm. what that means in terms of the women he's seducing and, and their options. Mm -hmm. And yeah, she thinks about, you know, being lady of an estate and how that means she has to interact with tenants. There's actually a lot more of the nitty gritty, like social elements in this one. Mm -hmm. I actually enjoyed some of it, but it is elitist for sure. Well, it's something to be aware of. And this is something that Quinn, so it's, we have talked about these books as being on a spectrum, right? So like Stephanie Lawrence is one of those people who's like, yes, class exists and it exists for a reason. And that reason is good. You and know? like divine right of the aristocracy for right. sure. And Julia Quinn, I think, doesn't present it in that light, but she also doesn't present it as something that you should question. She's not. Stephanie Lawrence is fawning. Mm -hmm. Julia Quinn is not critical. Right. Like there's a section in Romancing Mr. Bridgerton where mm -hmm. he's walking through, I forget where he's living. He lives somewhere, Cheapside or something. And he's like, I love living around working people. It's so interesting to see people who go to work every day. <laughs> I wouldn't want to do it myself, but. <laughs> so I think he lives on like the lawyer's street, not yes. Cheapside. <laughs> but you know. Yeah. But, well, he probably doesn't live, live in Cheapside, but. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, uh, of course, I am obsessed with romancing Mr. Bridgerton, so I remember that part. But um, but that's basically Quinn's thing. Is she's like, yeah, there are class differences. Yeah, they exist. Yeah, they probably aren't great. On the other hand, I'm writing about people who don't have to work, so let's enjoy it. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't even think she goes so far as to say, yeah, it's probably not a good thing. Maybe I think not. it's more unquestioned. 
It's just, this is how the world is. Yes, exactly. And so, there you go. And on the other end of the spectrum, we have Courtney Milan or Alyssa Cole, who really do problematize the issues and then give us characters who have really thought about it and try to combat it. Yeah, I don't think I've ever read a Julia Quinn with a character who's a suffragette. No. No. And I think that's the easiest, it's, that's the lowest stakes. It's such a trope. So many romance novelists who, like, largely fawn over the aristocracy still manage to somehow work the issue of women getting the vote into a book. And Julia Quinn is not even that political or anti-monarch. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would, I would put Lisa Kleypas at basically the same level as Julia Quinn except that she has several working-class heroes. Yeah, and I would argue more feminist heroes. Yeah. Explicitly. Explicitly, yes. But anyway, uh, I guess that's just... It, it did not offend me. And like Lane said, there were parts of the book that I thought were really interesting, actually. Mm-hmm because of the way it was handled um do i think that every book has to be a a critical gaze of class and society no i don't no it's just i don't know i think it was a really noteworthy part of this book that wasn't the main plot Mm -hmm. yeah exactly uh sexiness so for a book that is um pretty celibate it is also very sexy Yes. So poor Sir Richard has this problem. He has married a woman to assist him with a problem he has. And we can't tell you what that problem is until we get to the post-spoiler section. But the second he marries her, he realizes the kiss he gave her to compromise her basically blew his mind. That he wants, he really wants to have sex with her. Being in proximity with her is agonizing. However, for reasons having to do with his big secret, the union cannot be consummated for quite some time. For a while. And um, he is desperate and crazed knowing this. So the sexual tension in this book is um, dialed up to 11. Yes, and unfortunately, our heroine is not privy to our hero's inner workings. So she is getting increasingly frustrated and concerned that he does not want to have sex with her or that he might be gay. Yeah. And he feels the need to dissuade her of those notions. So there is a lot of non-sex sexual encounters. Mm Mm-hmm. That said, that can still be very sexy. Yeah. This is, I guess this is one of the sex tropes. You know, the sex trope, which is, you don't think I'm beautiful. And it's like, oh, really? You think I don't think you're sexy? And then it leads to the sexual encounter. Well, specifically, it leads to her touching his penis. Well, that. She touched his penis. Here's the proof of my desire for you. It's here all the time. All the time. And she's like, yeah, the penises are just like that. And he's like, no, they're not. Not all the time. Which is such a trope. Oh, my God. The number of female characters who have been like, is it like that all the time? Does it hurt? Around you, it is. (laughs) 
Thank you so much, Meg. I love it. I love it. That's <laughs> so but good. is that not always the answer? It's not not always the answer. Oh, and there's a whole lot of like speaking of more sex tropes, adjoining bedroom drawer dra- door drama. Yes. So, so oh. many and I love them every time. Every time I'm like, yes. And it's I don't know, I love it. <laughs> Me too. I, I love when the door is like symbolizes something. It's 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 like the the movie or the anime where the characters are on either side and they don't know the other ones on the other side and they're like touching through the door. I mean, that doesn't actually happen, but that's the vibe. She also has her entire trousseau and she's wearing it with increasing uh, sexuality, Mm -hmm. like increasingly sheer, increasingly like drapey, increasingly all of that. And he's, so he's like, not only this one was already irresistible and she, now she's irresistible and wearing like a scrap of fabric and I cannot. Mm-hmm. That's also a trope. So this book is pretty sexy. Is that what you're telling me? It's pretty sexy, but it's also a really fun exploration of a lot of sex tropes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because there's so much not having sex. Yes. And well, and also like there's an almost sex thing and he he stops her because he's like she would never forgive me if I let her do this and she didn't mm-hmm. know my secret mm-hmm. I also love so we talk about what what sex represents here right like one not only do they get to have a sex scene after the issues have largely been resolved but obviously him having sex with her is a symbol of him not being hung up on his plan for dealing with the great secret because his Mm -hmm. plan involved them not having sex. So Mm -hmm. him having sex with her is his apology slash admitting he was wrong. Uh, Yes. I was like, yes. I was like, yeah, it's his apology, but it's also basically him saying you were right and smarter Mm -hmm. than me all along. Correct. So if that sounds intriguing to you. Then do it. You should read this book. Okay. Do you want to, do a spoiler tag. If you if you would like if you have read the book and want to hear more about what we're talking about explicitly, or if you don't care about being spoiled, then listen on. Otherwise, if you enjoyed the rest of the podcast, rate, review, subscribe, and follow us on Instagram. Thanks so much for listening. So, the great secret is one of his sisters is knocked up. Yeah. And he, she told him that the father is dead and she wants to go, she wants to go away, raise the child, um, as a widow somewhere. And he's like, okay, that's a stupid idea for lots of reasons. And I don't disagree. Her idea is pretty dumb, but his idea is even dumber, which is I'm going to go find myself a bride and then she's going to pretend to be pregnant Mm-hmm. Until my sister gives birth, and then that will be my child. Right. Now, I have seen variations on this where, like, the bride is forced to raise the mistress's kid. Mm-hmm. And clearly, this is not that level of offensive. No. Like, he didn't cheat on her. He didn't err. He didn't, no. like, and it makes sense that he would want to take care of his sister and make sure his niece or nephew was raised in the same way the rest of the family had been. 
Mm-hmm. That said, one, he is not taking his sister, the mother of the child's feelings into account at all. No. And two, it's interesting. This is one of the moments I felt like really got into that classism we were talking mm-hmm. about earlier. Because one of Iris's biggest concerns is, what if it's a boy? Mm-hmm. And then the boy inherits. And then your son can't. And like that sort of hereditary right conversation is had and not questioned at all. Mm-hmm. In terms of like, is it right that like he doesn't respond by saying, "Who cares?" It's like, it's it's my the same blood, you know. It's she's my sister, right? Like this doesn't matter to me. He Mm -hmm. responds with, "Correct." He responds with, "He's he's like, he's like, yeah, I know it's going to be an issue." Oh, (laughs) yeah. So I just thought that part was really interesting. Like it was one of the biggest moments of like, oh, these people are out of touch aristocrats. These these people are aristocrats. Yeah, they they're like primogeniture is a right, and it is right. <laughs> and it's also a matter of, you know, how unforgivable do you think this thing is? Yeah, because there's also a question of not only are you going to force her to raise another woman's child, even if that woman is his sister who will still be around, blah, 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 blah. But you're also forcing her to marry into a family that is ruined, mm-hmm. effectively. Like, if it gets out that the sister had had sex out of wedlock and gotten pregnant, obviously that damages the family's reputation, that damages her little sister's reputation, that damages Iris's reputation by association. So not only has he like tricked her into being a part of the scheme, mm-hmm. he's also, if you buy into the like family worth level of aristocracy, he's tricked her into being a part of a family that's been disgraced. Yeah. Well, I do love, th- there are a few things that I really, really like about, not about the reveal, but about the conflict itself. Mm-hmm which are, I really like, really interesting, are, are both of his sister's agency, right? Mm-hmm. So the, the pregnant sister, Fleur, Fleur, she, um, she's not going along with his plan. So Sir Richard has come up with this really bad plan. Yes. Uh, that not only requires his wife to lie about her firstborn child, but also requires his sister to lie about you know, having a baby, having a baby and the parentage of this child forever and always. Mm-hmm. Right. He's changing the family dynamic a lot. Yeah. And his sister is like, she's not having any of it. She's not going to, she's not going to do it. And then Marie Claire, the younger sister, she basically has known a secret all along that she's been keeping from the whole family that could basically change everything as well. Wait, we're after the spoilers, so we, I don't even have to be like, she's been keeping another secret. She knows yeah. the father, she knows the baby daddy. Yep. It's not who Fleur says it is. It's and not, not that guy. dead. Yeah. Which I found interesting. One of the, the things I thought was actually pretty well justified. Obviously, Marie Claire spilling this secret she's been keeping for over a month to iris could have felt very inorganic Mm -hmm. i thought the way it was handled was perfect it was the perfect mix of iris as a sister Mm -hmm. knows what's up with sisters yes and marie claire 
Iris being the first person to realize that what the information Marie Claire has could help solve the problem. Well, and the first person to really even care about Marie Claire's opinion. Yeah. In years? All of this. Yeah. Yeah. So it was just, it was a really, really... I thought the dynamic that was established between Iris and Richard's sisters could have been very rushed considering they don't know each other for very much of the book. Right. But I actually thought that was one of the things Julia Quinn did really well. Her, that's what I'm saying is I, I feel like, I feel like this book is just really well done. I, I just yeah. love, I just love it. I think you're right. I think the c- central device for the mystery I hate so much, but everything else about this book is really well done. Like yeah. if you can, if you can get past that and not be frustrated the whole time, yeah, you'll probably really like this. I wish that one thing hadn't happened. Yeah, it, it's interesting. It's very interesting. It's very interesting. Well, especially because we're off the spoiler tag. He's yeah. thinking like. Oh, okay, so it's been a month, so I have to make sure we're married within the next couple of weeks, or it'll be too late. Uh-huh. If only Fleur hadn't done what she did. Yeah. We can't have sex for nine months. Right. <laughs> it's a little bit exhausting, like, how obvious it's made in the text. Yeah. But the way, like, it's still trying to be made a mystery. It's like, you're not deft enough at this, Julia Quinn. Like, you write cute family dynamics and cute characters. Focus on that instead of trying to pretend there's some sort of big mystery here. Yeah, yeah. I I, I don't disagree with you on, on that. I think it just bothers me less. I think it just bothers no, me less. I, I don't think it bothers you at all. No, I don't, no not at all. <laughs> like, <laughs> you're right. Like, it's 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 just not a thing that gets to you and it no really not at bothers. all I'm like eh, whatever you know <laughs> it's not a courtesy title not kidding <laughs> but actually kind of Alrighty, well thank you guys for sticking with us through that little interlude have a great one